Well, good morning. good morning. Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We're so glad you're here. My name is Matt, and it's a joy and honor being the campus pastor here. And I just want to give a shout out uh, to our team here at Bridgewater. I went on vacation uh, last week for my anniversary with my wife, and I did not get a single text about anything that broke or anybody that did anything. I got the whole week off. So thanks to David and the team. Let's give them a round of applause for me. They did a great job last week. <laughs> I, uh, I said to the, the worship, or not the worship, our, our ministry leaders team, I don't know if you know what an incredible team uh, we have here that leads, I just said, I, I love you guys so much, not just because I got to go on vacation and knew that you had it, but it didn't even cross my mind that you wouldn't have it at some point, just, just the supreme confidence in that team, and we're really, really grateful to have them. Uh, we are in week five of our series of Fight of Our Life, wrapping up this uh, talk. We've been uh, just kind of digging through some of the realities of the, the war around us and not the physical war, but some spiritual wars. And so I want to start today by telling a little bit of a story that hopefully will help you connect uh, what we're going to talk about today to your life a little bit. So when I was a teenager, my brothers and I um, decided we wanted to be big and tough and bear grills. And so we would go off into the deep woods of the Adirondacks and we would try to live off the land uh, for about five days. If any of you have seen the show Alone, uh, we were alone before it was popular on TV. Uh, that was us. And so one of our rules was you couldn't take anything that was newer than 17th century. Right? So no flashlights, no lighters, uh, no tents, no sleeping bags. We didn't bring food with us. Uh, we did bring a pack of rice noodles in case we found absolutely no food and we needed enough energy to paddle out. But we only ate whatever we caught. So if we didn't catch it or find it, we didn't eat it. Uh, no weapons other than a rabbit stick, no fishing pole. We, took, we did cheat with fishing line, um, but we just tied it to a stick and tried bobbing it, and that's how we would do that. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed it. Uh, a couple times we made it the full five days. One of the times we woke up in our tents, which we made out of old, old school tarps that we waterproofed, um, didn't hold up to the weather. Our, my tent and my brother's tent collapsed. Our sleep, our, uh, like wool blankets, because you can't take sleeping bags, because they didn't have those back then, um, got soaked. And so we ended up in my brother's tent, and we wake up to six inches of snow. All of our stuff is frozen. We said, we're out of here. McDonald's is calling our name. Anyway, <laughs> so one of these trips, I was with my oldest brother and two friends that really wanted to go with us. And over the course of the trip, it became very apparent that they did not belong on this trip. Uh, they loved the idea of it, but were not built for uh, this type of trip. And uh, it was day two, and uh, we usually spend day one getting water, and uh, we make our own charcoal filters out of the charcoal from the fire, and it, it's just really fun. So day two, we finally catch some fish, and they're really more like snacks than real fish, but that's fine. You'll take anything at that point. We're cooking them at about eight o'clock at night, just before the sun goes down. Uh, we try to wrap it up, clean it up, and we get into our open A-frame tent, and uh, we're just like, ah, this is awesome. It's quiet. We're, we're kind of remotely full, and crack, pop, crack, pop, snap, crack, stop. Peer out over my tent, see some eyes pacing back and forth through the woods, hit my brother, and I was like, hey, Take this out. And he goes, no, 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 the eyes are over there. I said, no, no, they're over there. No, no, there are seven everywhere. And there was about six or seven sets of eyes that were pacing around. And so as we're watching them, the eyes are getting closer and closer and closer. And I don't know what it is. Like there's something about when you're in a real tent, like that little zipper feels secure somehow, right? 
It's like you're just a you're just a burrito for the bear. You're not actually anything. But the open frame tent made you feel exposed, and so uh, we're like, All right, we got to do something because they want these fish guts. And so we decided to do what any logical person would do: is we took our birch uh, torches and we lit our birch torches and we grabbed our rabbit sticks and we decided to run and scream and smack as many trees as we could as we ran towards the pacing eyes, yelling and screaming. And before you judge me, it worked. All right, they ran away. They came for fish and found dummies instead. And so we, we sent them away. We did some things to kind of deter their return. And we, we felt real brave and masculine. And we crawled back into our tents and we're just like, I can't sleep. You can't sleep. All right, you stay up and I'll sleep. And neither one of us slept that night. But, but our minds were sharp and we were focused. And we, after, so after we chased them and we were coming back, um, the friends never got out of their tent. All right. It's the last time they ever got invited on a trip. Anyway, so, so all night we're just vigilant. And the next day we wake up and we realize that our surroundings are not as safe as we thought they were. We find bear markings everywhere. Uh, we find you know, just traces of these animals that were kind of running around. And we realize something really quickly. We were in enemy territory. We were not in a safe place. We were in a place actually that had predators that really wanted us for dinner. And as I think about this, while well, you can judge my hunting and survival skills, that's fine. Go ahead and, and laugh at me. But this fun memory really serves as a significant example of the reality of your life and of my life. Because we don't live in a safe zone. We live in enemy territory. The Bible makes it very clear that this world, that, that God has given Satan and darkness some reign in this world. And we live in enemy territory. And we, according to 1 Peter, have been marked and are being stalked by the enemy. If you don't believe me, go ahead and look at this. 1 Peter chapter 5 says this. Be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to Devour. Now, I'm sure there's not lions up in the Adirondacks, but there was something looking around, waiting for one of us to have a weak bladder at one in the morning and go out by ourselves and just get picked off. And Peter says, this is what the enemy is doing in your life spiritually. He's prowling around. You're in enemy territory. You've been marked and he's waiting to take you down. See, we're talking about the reality of the spiritual war that we are all in that we have an enemy, according to scripture, who would like to do one thing, stop you from praising and worshiping God. One, because he hates God and he doesn't want him to get the honor he is due. And two, because your life is best and most full when you are in right relationship with God. And so he seeks to destroy those. Paul says in Ephesians chapter uh, six, I want you to read this. It'll be on the screen here behind me, but it says this, Ephesians chapter six, put on the full armor of God. Now, do you, just pause right here. Do you put armor on in peacetime? Do you put armor on when you're going to the kitchen table? No, you put armor on when you're at war. And so Paul is saying here, realize we are in a war. So put on the armor. And this is what he says about it. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So often as we think about the fight of our life, we think about the fights we have with other people, the fights we have with our coworkers, the fights we have with our boss, the fights we have with our significant others. And those things may be a battle, but they are not your most significant battle. 
according to Ephesians, our wrestle is not with flesh and blood. It's against the schemes of the enemy to destroy goodness and destroy light and to deter you from worshiping Jesus. Which is why as we've uh, walked through this series, we, we haven't started the fight of your life talking about the adversary. We've started this series, the fight of your life, talking about your number one adversary, which is you. No one has more power to do more damage in my life than me. No one has more opportunity to lie to me than I lie to me, which is why week one, we started talking about the mind. You have to begin to take captive the thoughts that come your way because the enemy will throw thoughts, the world will throw thoughts, your own flesh will throw throw thoughts at you that just aren't helpful. And so we have to take those captive. We talked about that in week one. Week two, we talked about when those thoughts become your words and your words are given an opportunity to build up or destroy. Anybody still got their Lego? All right. If you weren't here and you missed what we were talking about, we, we talked about the opportunity you have to realize that everybody is in this spiritual war. They are fighting their own battles. And every time you talk, you have the opportunity to build into their defenses or to tear them down. I mean, that was week two. Then week three, we talked about fighting for the next generation. Because not only are we in a spiritual battle, our children are in a spiritual battle, our grandkids are in a spiritual battle. And we challenge you to be praying for them to get on our knees in prayer and fight for them. And so if you were here and you didn't get one of these prayer cards, uh, there's 31 ways to pray for your kids. We got some more. They're out at the Welcome Center. Go ahead and grab those on your way out. And then last week, David did a great job uh, talking through the story of Samson and how it is the, the habits that we make that create our, our, our character and that character determines our destiny, that we would begin to fight there. Now, we did all of that work so that when things go wrong, the first thing you would do would not point fingers and blame the enemy, that you would look at enemy number one, which is our own sin nature. That introspection would be our first move as Christians, not finger pointing. Now, having done all that work, we're going to talk about how we fight back against the enemy. You may not know much about this if you've not been around church often, um, but the thing you need to know <coughs> is that Jesus claims the enemy is real. There's, there's a lot of people who like to dismiss this whole idea, but Jesus himself claims the enemy is real and even had an interaction with him that you'll see later on. We're going to talk about it. But I want you to see what Jesus has to say about Satan. Jesus tells us this in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy's plan is to come and to steal goodness from your life, to, to rob you of joy, to steal you or your affections away from worshiping Jesus. There's nothing good that he does. His only purpose is to destroy God's good creation. Later on, or actually earlier on, in uh, two chapters earlier in John 8, Jesus says this about him. He was a murderer from the beginning not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks, excuse me, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The figure of Satan is often something that um, I think in modern culture, we just kind of laugh off. We just kind of dismiss the whole idea because uh, what happens as soon as you start to even consider, and maybe you've already thought this and you think I'm crazy, um, because when you hear Satan, what you think is this. You think this, 
right? This little caricature of this uh, little red devil with horns and a triad and a tail. And, and you think of the little angel and the little demon from the, all the cartoons. And like, that's the image you have in your mind. And of course, that seems ludicrous and ridiculous. But what's interesting about this image actually is it was created by kind of the medieval church in an attempt to mock and make fun of Satan, it, the whole thing was to kind of strike it as pride, which was what made him fall in the first place. This is kind of where the whole idea came from. Uh, there was a professor, and he, he asked this question. He, it was at a Christian college, and he said, how many of you believe in God? He, well, you know, most of the class raised their hand. And then he said, how many of you believe in Satan? And hardly anybody in the room raised their hand. There was a couple who raised their hands. And um, the one shouted out from the middle, how could anybody logically believe in this thing? Because this is what he has in his mind. It's just like with witches and goblins. Well, the professor, his name is R.C. Sproul, had this to say in response to that. He said, to lump Satan with witches and goblins is to severely misunderstand a serious and sobering thought. Perhaps our problem with Satan rests on the fact that we react to a caricature instead of the biblical view of him. In scripture, the term Satan means adversary. We know him as the devil. He is an, a high angelic creature who before the creation of the human race rebelled against God and has since battled with human beings and God. He is called the prince of darkness, the father of lies, the accuser, and the beguiling servant. The real portrait is nothing like the horned, triad-bearing, comedic adversary to which we have become accustomed. The biblical view of Satan is far more sophisticated. He appears as an angel of light. That image points to Satan's clever ability to manifest himself under the appearance of good. That's really important. Make sure you hang on to that thought for later. Satan is subtle, beguiling, and crafty. He speaks with eloquence. The prince of darkness wears a cloak of light. However, Satan is a creature. He is finite and limited. He is limited in space and time. He cannot be in more than one place at one time. He is never to be regarded in any way as equal with God. He is not divine. However, he has more power than earthly creatures, you and I, but ultimately less power than Almighty God. The demons are supernatural beings uh, who rebelled, who are subservient to Satan. They, like Satan, were once angels. They joined Satan in his rebellion and were cast from heaven. As you read Ephesians chapter 6, that we talked about earlier, the, the, the spiritual darkness of play, this is what he's talking about. That there is a darkness, Satan and his forces who stand opposed to God. And when we begin to see life, not as just we're doing our own thing or we're obeying God, you, you begin to see that every choice you make is one of two things. It's in partnership with God or it's in partnership with the devil. And I know that sounds extreme, and I hope it sounds extreme enough that you begin to think about it that way. But there is either the way of light or there is the way of darkness. There is no third side. And so when you and I choose our own way, we're not choosing our own way. We're choosing the way of darkness. Does that make sense? There's a spiritual battle at play in our lives. And so I want to help you find some tools in your life and some tools out of scripture that you can begin to, to battle well against this. And if you're here and you're not a believer even, this is for you, that you would listen in, that you'd be able to put some pieces together for what it is that the enemy is trying to accomplish in your life that you may not have known what it was. You go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, I want you to see this, that I'm not making it up. If you don't have one, we'd love to put one in your hands back at the Welcome Center for free. James chapter 4, we're going to jump halfway into verse 4. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. 
Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? This is why scriptures say God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Let's start back up in verse four there. He says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of uh, the world becomes an enemy of God. Let me unpack that for you here quickly. He's not talking about if you choose to have friends who are non-Christians, you're an enemy of God, though I'm sure you may have heard that taught at one point. You don't be a friend of the world, and we've, we've misunderstood what that means. Simply what that means is that I am not to align myself with the ways of darkness, I'm not supposed to align my life, my choices, my morals, my ethics with the ways of the world because those are not in line with who God is. And it's talking about I'm partnering myself with either the Lord's ways or the ways of darkness. He says in verse 5, there's this jealousy that he longs for his creation to be with him in worshiping, not only because he is due their glory, but because it is what leads to their flourishing. Your life is most full when you are in relationship with Jesus, not with the world. Then in verse 6, he says, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. As he's setting up this whole passage, and he's about to talk about how we deal with Satan, do you find it a little interesting that he talks about pride here? Like, is that really that important as you're talking about battling the enemy? Like, don't we need to, like, do all these, like, super spiritual things? And, and here he's saying, you need to understand that what caused the enemy to fall was pride. And so when you walk in pride, you're walking in the way of the enemy. So he says in verse 7, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. So you may be wondering what Satan has to do with you and what this conversation has to do with you. But from the very opening chapter of Genesis uh, chapter 1, 2, and 3, when God has created man in Genesis 3, what you see is is the serpent or Satan come into the narrative and begin to feed a lie to mankind, which was God is holding out on you. God doesn't have goodness and fullness for you. He's trying to hold things back from you. And if you would eat of this tree, you would be like God. You would know good and evil. What is he doing? He's striking at their pride that you get to call the shots. You get to be God. You get to know these things. And that's what he wanted. And so James starts this by saying, listen, if you want to fight and you want to win against the enemy, you have to not try to usurp God's authority. You have to submit to God's authority. Which leads us to our first point. If you want to begin to see the victory that God has promised in your life, that you would get humble. That you would get humble. Why? Because pride is the currency of the enemy. Pride is the currency of the enemy. And throw that up there, guys. What, what was true of Satan is that he was impressed with himself. He was impressed with his decision-making. He felt like he had it all under control. And can I just expose um, all of our sin here this morning, and you can hate me for it later, but every time we walk into sin, and I'll throw myself under the bus first, every time I walk into sin, it's because I think I know better than God. It's because I think I know how to get joy. I know how to get happiness. Otherwise, I wouldn't go there. I wouldn't go to sinful places if I didn't think there was a reward there. And all it is is my pride saying, I know a better way than God we could stop and realize what we realized the last time we went there is that it just leads to what? Destruction. It doesn't lead to, why? Because he is the father of lies. 
And he wants nothing more than to steal our joy and goodness. In fact, Proverbs says this about pride. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. You see, our greatest defense against the enemy is walking in humility. And pride takes on weird shapes, right? Like it's not the haughty, big showboating that we all think of. Though that is true, it takes on other subtle forms. Comparison and judgment and a graceless spirit and berating other people and judgmental attitudes, right? Like those are just as dangerous as the big audacious boasting individual. And so um, later on, if you're not part of our Facebook group, uh, Bridgewater Halstead campus page, our closed page, go ahead and join that. We'll invite you into that. I'm going to post a, an article later that kind of lays out 25 markers of somebody who walks with humility and 25 markers of somebody who walks in pride. And as I read through that list, I was like, oh, I can't even put this on stage. Like this is, it's just so confronting as I uh, read it. But we have to take this seriously because it is the, it is the way of our culture. We live in a me first, I decide my morality, I decide what's right and wrong. We, we push back at this whole idea that there's a God who has a better plan for our life. Well, we kind of like that idea when it works out with blessings and favors and goodness, but we don't really like that when it looks like us dealing with things in our life that we need to deal with. Let's keep going in what James has to say here as we continue to fight. James chapter 4, rest of verse 7. He says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. As you hear this idea, resist, and maybe you have, again, some weird ideas in your mind. You think you have to do this whole incantation, this whole weird thing of the devil. No, no, no. Here's what it means. You and I are not on the same side. Your temptations, the things you're trying to alert me with are, are going to lead me somewhere. I'm not going there. To resist means I'm setting my face against you. It says, I realize you and I, we're not friends. We're enemies. I find it interesting, and, and maybe this is just me, but we don't have a hard time getting real angry with somebody who cuts us off in traffic, right? We, we don't have a problem having a little scuffle in the grocery store over, you know. We definitely probably would be able to easily justify yelling at somebody robbing our house. We'd have no problem, maybe even some of us, being physically violent against somebody trying to steal your TV. But yet we play so soft with the devil, Oh, temptation? Oh, shucks. Oh, this thought, you want to come steal all of my joy and peace? Oh, come on over, right? Well, why are we so mean with people around us and yet so gentle with the one who is trying to destroy us? Why? Well, I think it's because we don't take the spiritual battle seriously, which is our second point today, that not only would you get humble, but you would get serious about this battle you'd begin to see that when the enemy is coming at you with sin and temptation, it is not for anything other than to rob you spiritually of all the good that God has for you. And so I think there's a couple ways we get serious about this. One, we resist the devil, which is what uh, we said right from the verse, that we would resist the devil. Now, that means you and I are not on the same side. And I want you to take a cue from Jesus here. Luke chapter 4, go ahead and write that down, Luke chapter 4. Go ahead and look at it for yourself later. It's where Jesus is tempted by Satan. And through this whole process, he, he tempts him three times. And you see Jesus just stand. He's not afraid of him. He doesn't run away from him. He says, you and I are not on the same side. You're speaking lies to me, which was interesting. If you read the lies, there's a piece of truth in each one of those. There's a little subtlety of truth that's just twisted. And how does Jesus reply each time? With scripture. 
this is false, this is false, this is false. Get out of here. And the devil leaves, which means you and I need to know truth if we're going to combat the lies. We've got to be in the word for ourselves. I think the second part of taking this seriously is recognizing his strategy. That you just begin to see uh, the strategy in which he's trying to take you down. Like, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick on my hunters here for a little bit. And I love you guys. I'm not, I'm not really picking on you. I just want you, to, I want you to see the weight of this a little bit. I know guys, and I talk to guys, and if this is one of you, I'm not poking at you. Say it was your buddy that I was talking to. The amount of effort that is put into tracking deer. Y'all know where they sleep. Y'all know which one slept where. You know which bush the turkey slept in last night. You know where they're going to come out. Your guns are clean. Your guns are ready, right? Like the weekend is planned for a deer. Now that's awesome. I had some great venison steak the other night. So thank you to those of you who are better at it than I am. But what if you put just an ounce of that effort into the spiritual battle that you're fighting? What if you put just an ounce of recognizing the strategy of how the enemy is trying to circle you, to take you down, and you begin to take with the same seriousness that you take a really fun hobby, the way that the enemy is trying to take down you, take down your spouse, take down your family. You just said, I see it for what it is. See your strategy. Well, here's what I think is probably the biggest strategy that he will use on us and is the most successful against us. It's simply this, that he would distract you from God's purposes for your life that he would distract you with shiny things. Your job, your careers, your house, your projects, your events, your this, your that. Are any of those things bad? No, not in the least, but he is the angel of light, which means he will use good things and he will twist them to become God things so that you no longer give God praise. And so... uh, Uh, James calls it friendship with the world, but Paul says in Philippians, he says this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. You see what makes them an enemy of the cross? It's that their appetites and desires are so satiated by the things of the world, they have no spiritual hunger left. They're rendered spiritually ineffective because they're so earthly minded. And this is so tricky because you spend so much of your life doing what you ought to do, which is working hard and providing. Spend so much of your life doing things, raising kids, all super important things. But there is this line between this is what God has called me to do to steward the life he has given me. And these things are distracting me from the spiritual things that God has called me to chase. The spiritual conversations I'm supposed to have that I don't have because I'm too busy having financial conversations. The spiritual conversations and relationships I'm supposed to invest in that I don't have because I'm too busy with my hobbies. Are they bad? No. Angel of light. And the thing about this is, why would he bother you with hardship? Why would the enemy bother somebody so distracted by the things of the world Because you know and I know that the moment hardship hits somebody's life, what do they do? They turn towards God. Whether they believe in God or not, the car accident happens, they start praying. God, if you're there, why would he send hardship your way? He's going to leave you to your comforts. Leave me to my comforts and render me spiritually ineffective. If that doesn't work, if you're not caught up by the things of the world, maybe you've had them and you realize they don't hold the things you thought they would hold, He's going to go to a second strategy, which would be to deter our hope. 
to, to distract us, sure, but then to deter our hope. And this can show itself in a bunch of ways, but anybody in here willing to admit that you know when you're trying to push forward and take your next step in obedience to God or, or whatever it is, like temptation is close at hand every time, right? Like it's one step forward and he is biting at your heels, which is why probably you have your biggest arguments with your spouse or your kids Sunday morning. Right? Which is why um, anytime you need to do something big spiritually, there's all of this turmoil behind you. Why? Because he's trying to deter you. Because we don't like discomfort. And so if he can make it even a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit distracting, or make us question God's uh, provision a little bit, we're going to run right back to our comforts. So if we're willing to see it for what it is, this is what it is every time. It's interesting, I was telling um, somebody in between, I knew getting ready to preach this sermon that, I was going to deal with some things from the enemy. And for the past 10 years of ministry, every time I was getting ready to have a conversation like this or a big spiritual moment, uh, this was always the strategy, deter our hope. Uh, just hardship would hit, somebody would get in a car accident, like all these things that would try to throw me off. That, that's not true this week. This week it was all distractions. It's all really good things that I just I couldn't get to my notes. Like literally I was like, okay, I'm going to sit down and write. My laptop's dead. My charger's an hour away. Where's your charger? Half hour away. <sighs> All week long. Well, I want to see it for what it is. It's a distraction from being spiritually effective so that you didn't hear the word of God proclaimed to you that you would continue to live in the lie. And we're here today to say he's already lost. We just have to walk in that victory. We'll have some time to celebrate that in a little bit. I got to keep moving here before you'll fall asleep on me. Verse 8. <clears throat> Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Happy, sunny Sunday. Be warm and filled. All right. What a, what a chipper verse. You know, what's interesting about this verse is I've spent most of my life reading this verse, um, trying to convince the Bible that it's wrong about its assessment of me. I'm not double-minded. My hands are clean. Uh, 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 like I've spent my whole life arguing that this verse isn't mean. What is that? It's pride. It's the verses up that says, no, 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 I'm not this. No, no, no. We are all double-minded. We all have dirty hands. We all have done things in alignment with the enemy. That's not the shocker of this passage. The shocker of this passage is the invitation to return. We did cross enemy lines. We did go into darkness. We did. We did put on the enemy's uniform. And yet the invitation of Jesus stands the same. Come back over. Come back out of darkness and into light. Take off the enemy's uniform. You will be given the righteousness of Christ. Would you come back and wash up from the dark places you have been? It does not scare him. It does not deter him. But we have to deal seriously when the times where we've strayed in the darkness, which is our next point. Next point, that we would get holy. If you want to win against the enemy, you can't partner with the enemy by sinning. And this doesn't mean we are holy. It means we walk in the holiness of Jesus. We walk in repentance. We walk in confession. We walk in the light. We return from the ways that we have gone wayward. And when the enemy comes, we get to stand and say, nah, you've got no claim here. Why? Not because I'm righteous, certainly not, but because the righteousness of Christ has been given to me. One of the greatest tactics the enemy will use in your life is guilt and shame. I, I see it all the time. 
You messed up. Okay. Is it a big deal? Well, yeah, apart from Jesus, it would be a grave deal. But the enemy's going to come along and convince you that it's the end of you. That because of that, you're never coming back. Because of that, God will never turn to you and you'll just begin to live in guilt and shame and then you'll project that onto the people around you. The army that's supposed to be fighting with you, you're going to begin to say, uh, well, they're just judging me and they're just this and I can't even open up to them because of what they'll say and what is that? Guilt and shame that the enemy would keep you in the lie of darkness. And so this aspect of holiness really is just an aspect of confession. I've screwed up. Across enemy lines, Jesus, would you restore me? Which is why it's so important that you have people in your life who are willing to help pull you back. We need people that we need to be honest and open with and say, listen, I'm weak in this area of my life. Would you defend me here? Why? Because the enemy wants to flank me on this side and I know it and I know my tendencies. Would you guard me here? Now, it's not their responsibility for you to make moral decisions, but God has given them in the body that they would defend you and protect you. But what the enemy will do is try to convince you that they are your enemy. Why? Because the ways of Satan are secrecy and hiddenness and darkness. And if he can keep you isolated from the people who are going to speak truth to you, it will not be long before he takes you out. I can almost predict it as I'm in counseling or I'm having conversations with people and I watch them begin to cut people out of their life, to cut frequency of hearing the word of God out of their life, being too busy for small group, too busy for church, too busy for community. I can pretty much put it on the calendar when they will walk away. Pretty much put it on the calendar when the enemy will take them out. Why? Because we are too weak on our own. We just are. Me as the first to admit that. I need people on my flanks and you need people on your flanks to help us walk the road that God has given us. He finishes with this, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Which is to get humble, to get serious about this battle, to walk in holiness that is given to us through Jesus and he will lift you up. He gives you this promise that if you're willing to stand against the enemy, the loser has to flee. Can you call Satan a loser? Yeah, you can call him a whole lot worse if you want, all right? I save all my French for Satan. Why? Because I realize he is not on my side. The thoughts he throws at me, the the temptations he puts my way, the distractions, those are not for my good or for my flourishing. They're for my destruction. When I see that, it gets me angry. I hope it gets you angry. I hope we begin to to fight in the way that God has called us to fight. And when you're willing to be humble about it, I don't have it all together. I need to be serious about this battle. I need to walk in holiness. Here's what you're given. You're given the freedom of Christ. That's our last point. That if you do these things, you would get to experience and gain the freedom that Christ has given you. Because here's the thing about this battle. You are not fighting for freedom. You are fighting from freedom. Let me say that again. You are not fighting to get freedom in your life. Christ has already given you that freedom. You are simply fighting to walk in that freedom. The sin you wrestle with is already already paid for, already defeated, already put down at the cross. What the enemy would do is try to convince you to come along and join the losing side. He has no power over us other than to deceive us into believing lies. And he uses the ways and distractions of the world to do that as a weapon of his. But if we could just stop and go, wait, 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 wait. 
You want me to put back on the prison uniform that Jesus already took off of me? You want me to put back on the chains? Because that's what it is. And yet, it seems so alluring. It seems so appealing. If it didn't, we wouldn't go back there. And we need Jesus' help to change our mind and change our thoughts and to change the appetites of our souls. That the things that the enemy puts in front of us, that we would just be disgusted by them and we just push them aside. I was talking to a, a man, been in faith a long time, I was talking to him this last week, and as he was talking, I just began to realize he had just uh, begun to believe so many lies of the enemy. It had just taken root in his life and it began to steer the ship for him. And we just began to uh, talk the gospel back over him. And I just kept thinking about this passage and I hope it rings true for you this morning, this victory. This is what Jesus did for us. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. Here, here's what Paul's saying. Jesus went ahead and according to the verse above this, as he took the record of your debt, your sin, my sin, our screw-ups, he took that record and he nailed it to the cross and he defeated it and he put Satan and all of his cronies to shame and said, get out of here. You're done for. You have no claim over my son and over my daughter. And as I was talking to this individual, I said, I, I know you've begun to believe some lies. Would you just call them what they are? Would you start believing truth? You're not a loser. You're not a screw-up. You're not done for. Jesus purchased you back and has given you freedom. Would you walk in it? 1 John 4, 4 says this. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Because Christ in me, Christ in you is greater than the one in the world. This whole week as I was getting ready to have this conversation, there was kind of this weird trepidation of like, oh, I'm going to go at Satan. Is he going to come at me? And it, it, caused, it caused me to want to back down a little bit. And I was like, he already lost. I'm the one who gets to walk in victory and, and tell everybody else that he's a loser. Why? Because Christ in me has overcome. Would you this week, and this has been my prayer for you all week, First Peter, what he said, You'd be alert and sober-minded. I don't want you walking around panicking, right? But as I walked through the woods after we were stalked, I began to see and hear and feel things a little differently. The cracks in the woods made me turn around and look and inspect what was there. Now, it sounded like a bear. It was just a chipmunk, and everybody knows what I'm talking about, all right? Squirrels sound like a 10-point buck in the middle of the fall. But what if you, with the same set of eyes, begin to go through your life and look at situations with that spiritual lens? This temptation to darkness, what is it? It's temptation to darkness. This problem over here, this conflict, what is it? Is it just a conflict where we wrestle against flesh and blood? Or is it the enemy trying to create a division with the people that I need to be united with? As I get these thoughts in my head, is that me being really discerning? Or is that the enemy getting in there and causing judgmental attitudes to separate me from people? We just be alert and sober-minded at the war that is around us. And would you walk in the victory and say, get behind me, Satan. I'm running to freedom. I'm running to joy. I'm running to life and life abundant. And you can't stop me because Jesus has already given it to me. I'm going to invite you guys back next week.
We're going to kind of continue this conversation. We're going to jump into a new series called Relationship Goals because um, I understand and you understand that most of the conflicts you endure happen within relationships. And so we want to kind of continue this conversation and say, okay, in every aspect of your relationship, how do you fight, not in the way that the world would call you to fight, but how do you have goals for your relationships that God would call you uh, to live in and walk in so that you can experience relationships as they were designed, not as the world would have you believe there to be? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We just stand here today in awe of your power. And we just get to be recipients of a great victory. And I thank you for what you did at the cross and that you went and you paid for our sins and you paid the penalty that was due to us and you defeated darkness and brought us into light and called the sons and daughters. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're hearing this conversation and you think it all sounds a little, a little bit much, we want to invite you to begin to pursue truth. If you don't know Jesus and don't have a walk with him yet, we would like to invite you to understand that relationship. We'd love to have a conversation with you or pick up your Bible and start in the in Gospel of John and just keep reading it for yourself and see what is in there. Lord, for those of us here today who do know you and, and do call on your name, there may be some areas of weakness in our heart, whether it's pride or whether we're not taking this walk seriously or some sin that you need to shed your light on and lead us into holiness. Pray that as we go from here, God, you would give us the strength to identify those, to hand them to you, and to walk in the victory that you have for us. Today, Jesus, we proclaim that those who are in Christ have the greatest resource at their disposal. We proclaim today that we have overcome because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And today, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.